everyone and for today i'm joined with cameron maddie of queen of hearts but before i really get into today's episode i did want to point out that while we are going to talk about annie as a character like i do in my traditional episodes a lot of questions will build off off their film queen of hearts so if you haven't seen it i do have the link in my podbean account so be sure to check it out before you listen to today's episode with that uh here's cameron maddie Hey everybody, this is Cameron. Uh, I am the writer and director of Queen of Hearts, the Twin Peaks fan film. You may have seen me over the years. I host the Twin Peaks Saw the Day videos and other stuff on the Obnoxious Anonymous YouTube channel. Hello everyone. My name is Madison Bates. I uh, worked on Queen of Hearts as originally the producer and I also ended up playing Annie Blackburn as well. We could start off, uh, we'll just go in chronological order, uh, starting with everything from the final dossier, is I'm going to try to bypass a lot of the stuff, the more kind of fluid parts of the family tree, but I will point out that Tammy actually does get Annie's age wrong twice, or at least once in her writings. And it kind of sets the precedent of you're not sure what to trust or not to trust because they mentioned that she was born in 1973, I believe. I was like, she couldn't possibly be 15 or 16 at that time. But then she admits that she's in her early 20s after she gets out of the convent. I wasn't sure if you had anything in mind of what you took as what was potentially real versus what seemed right or wrong in your eyes when when making Queen of Hearts and how you view Annie Blackburn. Well, if you go to the Cooper diary uh, that Scott Frost wrote, the Wyndham Caroline Cooper love triangle happens in the mid to late seventies. But in the show, he talks about how him and Wyndham protected Caroline or guarded her um, four years earlier to the Laura Palmer mystery. So that puts us at 84 to 85. So even that doesn't make any sense, right? So dates have always been fluctuating in Twin Peaks <laughs> for as long as the series has been around. So honestly, I took primarily the show as canon, the movie as canon, and then the books, unless I, I treat it as canon, unless it completely contradicted the show. So for instance, like that, like that contradicted the show. She's not going to have a boyfriend, leave high school, go to a convent and be out at 15. Dale Cooper would never have given that big speech to Audrey about her being so young for him when she's literally 18 years old, right? So, I mean, like, yeah, she's young, but she's of legal age. So he's not going to go with Annie Blackburn who's 15, right? So, um, yeah, that, so all that kind of went away. And also Tammy is very much an unreliable narrator through a lot of that. One, the timelines are fluctuating because of what happens at the end of season three. But at the same time, though, she's also trying to look good for Gordon Cole because so there's a few times in the final dossier where she throws Cooper under the bus so that she looks better. So she wants to be the star of the show now. <laughs> Man, he pretty much covered it. I mean, that's 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 pretty much it. I would agree um, with all that. I guess we'll just kind of go on is that her biological father from at least what I remember, I believe it's Marty Lindstrom. And the whole thing with Annie is that she grows up in the motel, the weary traveler. Once Norma finds out about her, she has this very strong protective instinct for her to the point where she doesn't even, not only does she not tell Hank, she doesn't even tell Ed. 
Uh, and again, we're just going by, you know, what Tammy says, but I just figured that was actually uh, worth pointing out. Also, this is around the time when, and this is what kind of comes into, she moves out of the motel to uh, Roland Blackburn's. Um, it's, I believe it's six weeks af- after Marty's death. And then she's sent away to a Catholic boarding school a few weeks later where she maintains her good grades, only visited by Norma. And then we get to the Christmas party scene that uh, you both had. I wasn't, again, I wasn't sure if there was anything you had in mind with the final dossier beyond what was presented here. Well, in the show, she's in the boat and she's talking to Cooper about, he asks about her suicide attempt and she says it has to do with a boy. Nothing else is really said about that. Then the final dossier brings up this idea about the stepdad trying to uh, assault her on around Christmas and that what led to it. So when it came time to doing Queen of Hearts, I just thought, you know what, to get Annie's character to go zero to 60 and also she's still in the lodge, spoilers, in our film at that point and the lodge is sort of like replaying the worst day of her life. I thought, well... You know, if we had Roland do his thing, if we had the boyfriend kind of, you know, break up with her, if we had her mom throw her out of the house, it would be just a term, you know, just like a huge amount of events happening all at once that would make her just not plan for it, but just... It would just be a spontaneous thing. You know, we were we were very lucky because we ended up shooting that scene around Christmas. So the house we were shooting at, like, still had the Christmas tree and the lights and stuff like that. And I thought that's perfect because we at first we were just going to put some, like, Christmas lights around. But having the full tree there and having Annie just kind of looking at the tree and being kind of sickened and depressed by the whole night already before things happen with Roland, I thought uh, really illustrated the, kind of the tragic nature of her, of her character. I agree. It totally did. And I remember Cameron, you telling me, you know, when we were discussing the character, she says it was about a boy, but you know, you feel like there's more there. And, you know, is that enough really to push someone that far in that instance? And so um, all that extra information that we find really helps kind of illuminate the story. And I, I definitely was glad that you told me about all that, Cameron, because it really helped with the characterization and like putting yourself in that moment. It really does build and definitely push her over the edge. And also because it's in the lodge, it's a heightened reality anyway. Exactly. After having was basically the worst night of her life, actually that's around when Roland leaves and then 15 minutes later drives off bridge, which the brake line may or not have been tampered with. But then of course, uh, you know, with all that, Annie, she tries to down bottle of tranquilizers and uh, slits her wrists. And then uh, she ends up confined to a psychiatric ward for six months after surviving it. And once again, Norma's the only one that visits. Then Annie does return with Vivian and Ernie for a little bit. But then uh, she promptly just returns to school and just hates the idea of going back that she just stays at the convent for a time. I wasn't sure if there was anything else either you had in mind just because, you know, these are also other large events pertained or lean into Twin Peaks. Well, if you watch the show and she comes back from the convent, just a couple episodes earlier, we had Vivian and Ernie in town, right? She shows up as the mysterious M.T. Wentz. They don't even mention Annie. So, I mean, if so if you want to look at it just from a writer's perspective, were they still trying to get the Cooper-Audrey storyline going? Because they don't even name drop Annie. What a perfect opportunity to say, your sister's getting out of the convent. She'll be here in a you know few days. They don't even drop her name at all. So I thought, well, that's really cold. I mean, obviously... From a writer's point of view, if they didn't know it was happening yet, okay, that makes sense. But with what we have now as the show, you have a, a mom going to visit her stepdaughter. Doesn't even name drop that her daughters might be coming to town. So that means that Vivian has completely moved past Annie 
<laughs> not even thinking about her anymore. And, and also there's a, there's a moment in our film where after Roland leaves and Vivian throws Annie out, there's a sound effect. You can hear the screeching tires of Roland's car leaving. So that was, you know, to obviously hint at what the final dossier suggests, which is basically a riff off what happens to Uncle Pooch in Wild of Heart with the idea of like the person who tried to assault Marietta's daughter, Lula ends up exploding off the side of a mountain. <laughs> so there's like, there's connections everywhere. Once she's in her early 20s, she does uh, obviously come back to Twin Peaks where Norma ha- gives her a job. And of course, this is where Dale Cooper comes into play. We could probably talk about Dale Cooper and how he views Annie, because I feel like this is the part where it'll start, you'll see that how I'll probably have a different stance on Annie compared to you both, just because th- there's just a lot with their interactions that just stand apart for me. So what what would you say stands apart for you specifically? Actually, uh, Cameron, uh, I know you're friends with Emma from the vlog lady, so you probably already know where this is going. Oh, about the about the tulpa. Even today, I was actually thinking of it a little bit differently. Is that I at first I, I had it written down for the longest time that she was a possible byproduct of the Black Lodge, but I actually view it almost as like potentially as if Annie is uh I don't know, there's something that can almost is dormant within her. It's not unlike I, I would say it's not like uh Sarah Palmer or Leland Palmer. There are just certain aspects of what's what's what stands out to me in the final dossier. And a lot of what in the show would be potential plot conveniences, because uh, what I have written down is that uh, is that Norma, she always refers to Annie as being very like in her own world and such. And then it seems like, uh, you know, it's like we were talking about before with when Vivian comes in is that she's kind of like almost arbitrarily talked about where Vivian's completely cut off, but she's not really mentioned at all. And then with Cooper, where Wyndham Earl is back and there's all this stuff that's going on and he's just so transfixed on Annie. But the big one for me is that when he create when he's uh, doing the little design of the of Major Briggs and the Log Ladies Mark, and she just casually name drops Owl Cave. It's like this place that's pitch black that even Hawk doesn't know about. I thought, oh, this actually kind of works out pretty well. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is that I feel like, and actually one of the things that Tammy says in the final dossier, and it's this one I would agree with, is that she says somehow Cooper could never resist a bird with a broken wing. And it just seems like she's like the perfect person that would get Cooper into the Black Lodge. And uh, sorry, I know I'm getting a little long-winded about it, but the last thing is that Major Briggs says that fear and love open the doors. And I always view it where it's like with Cooper, where he obviously has a love for Annie, but then there's also just that fear of losing her and her awaiting this horrific fate. And that would be the thing that would kind of prompt him going in the Black Lodge and just throwing a wrench into everything at that point. Wow. Well, originally it was supposed to be Audrey going to the Black Lodge, so it, it would have served the same function. Yeah, I mean, like we, we kind of talk about that a little bit in our film where Annie is talking to her boyfriend and they talk about how they had this like owl cave challenge and they had to like stay in there overnight. And so he's kind of a, a douchebag. So she's probably looking at, at the walls all night, you know, kind of looking around and she talks about how she felt protected. I mean, if we go by your illustration, you could say, well, even though she's not and a quote-unquote agent of the White Lodge, yet she's still got this aura of being being protected. And we know that time is subjective then, especially as we go on in the plot of Queen of Hearts with Annie jumping around in time. So I do see that that could be the case even before she becomes an agent of the White Lodge, that she's still protected. Almost like she's destined for greatness, right? So there's going to be that thing around her. And I mean, let's not lose sight that if you just go by the show itself, the second season, Annie was created for 
reasons, right? They couldn't they couldn't do the Cooper Audrey story. So they created a character, a very, very weird, awkward kind of character. Think, you know, who's gonna bring in a suicidal ex-nun to be the love interest of Asian Cooper? But they did it. She's the redemptive arc for Caroline, right? I mean, it's basically everything's being set up to be a replay of Cooper, you know, against Wyndham Earl with this woman in, in between them. Wyndham Earl thinks it could have been any of these four other women because he's got these different cards and stuff like that. But of course it ends up being Annie. It has to be Annie. I mean, if it had been Shelly, it just wouldn't have made sense, right? So that's why when Annie wins Miss Twin Peaks and Cooper's just like, oh Lord, right? But one of the things we talk about in the film is when the doppelganger visits her at the hospital and Annie says, what do you think everyone was saying to me, you know, or I saw people saying behind my back, you know, that, you know, you had this thing with Audrey, people saw you around town, then you're with me, I didn't know about this at all, because I met you on the first day I got here, he's out there warning Shelly, Donna and Audrey that Wyndham Earl is out there hunting him down, but he's going all over town with Annie Blackburn, right, knowing that Wyndham Earl is like stalking them, and he doesn't, he doesn't think to tell her, that his ex-partner's in town looking to kill somebody close to him? It's a small town. It doesn't make sense. It's a small town. And then you definitely see that frustration come out in her character later of like, you know, what really was I to you? And she, I think she starts to question the relationship a bit after all that. Oh, she's done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting it lightly. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the thing with Dale Cooper is that he's very transfixed in the moment and he never actually really can see a bigger picture. And I feel like that's something you tapped into for Queen of Hearts because I think of how you think of how you view Annie as like so central to like the mythos of Twin Peaks at large. Just change things like, you know, I guess in between the scenes, if you will, of like all three seasons. Well, David Lynch is the one that brought that up because if he had not put her in Fire Walk with me, I probably never would have come up with that connective tissue. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's the one that put her in Laura's bed. On that topic, what was it like for you in theaters where you watch uh, the Annie Blackburn scene and then you see her seeing the missing pieces, which I feel like must either reaffirm or change a lot in the 22 years during that time. Well, the scene in the theater was surprising because almost every other character from the original show had been cut out. But here is Annie Blackburn in the middle of this thing. And the ending of Firewalk with me with Laura looking at the angel and them in the Black Lodge, that really got to me not so much the way a lot of people look at it in terms of like Laura feeling like the angels are there for her, but more of like, oh my God, like they're safe in this hell world, this Black Lodge. What the hell is going on outside that's making somebody like Annie Blackburn travel through time to get this message to Laura? Like things have to be really bad out there. That doppelganger has to be really tearing stuff up. Now, I had the script for Firewalk Me for years before we saw the missing pieces, right? And the script basically says, you know, um, some months later, Annie's brought into the hospital. But when you watch The Missing Pieces, when it finally was released, you see, oh my goodness, they're bringing her in wearing Caroline's dress. They're not bringing her in wearing the Miss Twin Peaks dress that she came out of the lodge wearing. So right there, that kind of inspired me in terms of like, well, you know, if we ever did get to make this film, that would theoretically, now I understand Firewalk Me is all about switching things up. Right. So Dale Cooper, DC becomes Chester Desmond, CD. 
the picture of Laura at the high school is the one that was at the Palmer house and the Palmer house picture is the one that was in the high school. I get it. The whole movie is about flipping things around. However, when it came time to doing this film, I thought that means that Annie has gone to Glastonbury Grove at least twice. So I have the scene later in the film where she goes to Glastonbury Grove and has her breakdown and Norm is there with, uh, with Sheriff Truman and then they bring her to the hospital and she's wearing the other dress. So that was like something that wasn't in the script. But then when I saw the missing pieces, I thought that's kind of cool because it does say some months later. It does not say three weeks later, which is what it was, you know, kind of is, right? If you go by the show's timeline. So that came, it gave us permission to like, go, okay, cool. She's hanging out with Dean. She's going through all this stuff in time and space. So by the time she gets back, it can be some months later. On the top of Queen of Hearts more so, I do like the fact that you made that some months later adjustment because... I know with the missing pieces, I just accepted that Lynch kind of had his own thing they like to do. Like, you know, you read the, especially the last parts of The Secret Diary, a lot of it doesn't quite lap with uh, Fire Walk With Me. I remember when I interviewed Jennifer Lynch and I said, well, when he was going to make Fire Walk With Me, did you think he was going to adapt your diary? And he, she said, Cameron, I don't think he's ever read my diary. So right there, that tells you something, right? And then if you look at, like, there's so much in like season three that's just left open to interpretation, right? Like, for instance, in part eight, when the fireman or the giant, you know, and the, the the orb comes out, right? And they send the orb into the, into, towards the United States. If you watch the orb go, and it's going, it's going across Mexico, whatever. And it, you, it looks like it's on a trajectory to the Pacific Northwest. But where the fade out happens in the, in the show is right as the ball passes Odessa, Texas, right? So it's like, are they sending the ball to the Pacific Northwest? Or is that them sending? Sending Carrie Page to Odessa. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, when Laura's in the Black Lodge and she screams and she flies away, is that the ball being sent <laughs> to Odessa, Texas? There's so much stuff that like is just left open. So yeah, I mean, there are definitely multiple timelines. Because for instance, when you look at part 18 and they show Cooper rescuing Laura, right? It's a different shot. It's different takes. So that's implying that he's done this multiple times now. <laughs> he's trying to get this right. So who knows how many multiverses there are. Yeah, I always kind of thought of it more so that there's two realities that we're primarily focusing on, or at least Lynch is primarily focused on, but there are others. Uh, I guess, you know, we could say some like My Life, My Tapes could probably fit the bill for that. But yeah, that's the thing is that like, I know everyone has different theories on how many alternate universes there are, or, like alternate scenarios. Um, it's always hard to know where to pull the thread on it. Right. And a lot of his work is, I mean, you could argue that Mulholland Drive is in here too. And, you know, he says that Lost Highway takes place in this world. So, I mean, it's, it's all one world. I mean, like Firewalk With Me is the prequel to Twin Peaks. But really, the prequel to Twin Peaks is Blue Velvet. Like, his, it's, it's Jeffrey Beaumont, but it really is. It really is Cooper and Diane as, like, their first little Hardy Boys mystery, you know? Out of all the Lynch's filmography, I always viewed that in terms of being a direct sequel to Twin Peaks, I always viewed uh, actually Lost Highway was, where the mystery man just feels like he completely fits as omnipresent evil from the Black Lodge. And, you know, who's to say it has to be just in Twin Peaks? It can be other vicinities. And that's not even going the fact that the Hollywood trilogy with Mahal and Driver the Inland Empire can overlap as well. Yeah, because I, I think Wow Lynch Wow, he said in one of his videos that Lynch had two other movies in mind for Twin Peaks, and that when they fell through, that a lot of that carried over for Lost Highway and a lot of similar elements as well. Well, it makes sense. I mean, Pete, Pete and his girlfriend, don't they feel like 
James or Bobby and like one of those girls in Twin Peaks that they, you know, it. Do, I mean, and a lot of Lost Highway is the James and Evelyn storyline <laughs> for the big screen. Oh man, I, I didn't even think of it like that. Um, I don't know. It's like I think you, I, I think you make it the James Evelyn stuff sound a little too good when you put it like that. <laughs> well, I'm just saying it's it's, but he didn't write any of that. He didn't direct any of that, right? So it's sort of like if he had directed the James and Evelyn sequences, that's it would have been more like Lost Highway. Honestly, yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, yeah, I, that my thing is that whenever I do rewatches of Twin Peaks, I always watch from Leland's Wake up until the giant chess piece in one night. I was like, all right, just got to get through all the bad stuff in Twin Peaks in one night. So once Look, I come back tomorrow, it'll, it'll be good. It's only a few episodes, but when it aired, it was two months. And that's why the show died, right? If it had been a week or two, whatever, but it was like eight weeks. And then with hiatuses and stuff like that. And then when the Annie art came in, they weren't even going to air those episodes. I mean, that the show was done. They pulled it after Josie died. They weren't going to air it. And that was at a time when, you know, sh- there were no, there's no streaming. There's no DVD. There's nothing like that. Right. So we were, we, we weren't even going to get them. And enough people complained that they said, fine. So they put the first four out, then waited another month and put out the last two as a Monday night movie. And that was it. Oh, I think it was in Reflections by Brad Dukes where it actually had less to do with Coop, the movement. And it actually had more to do with, I forget which country, but they had to have all episodes released on ABC in order to play it in one other country. But it was like a two month gap, right? And I remember a friend of mine called me and said, yeah, apparently the girl from License to Drive is going to be in this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's ridiculous. And then here we are 30 years later, you know, making a four hour film about that character. So. Before we like get any further into Annie from Twin Peaks, was there anything else to bring up just in terms of my view on Annie kind of being at odds with yours? I don't think it's at odds. I think there's so much that can just like sit alongside of it. One thing that you may want to get into what I love is Maddie had not even seen any of Twin Peaks before she got involved with this film. So she binge watched all three seasons and the movie before she even read the script. So it's like it all. I mean, imagine that. Imagine binge watching three seasons of Twin Peaks and the movie and then reading the script. I mean, it was I mean, I think. I think her mind was blown. It took a long time. (laughs) I think I got it done two weeks, just nonstop. Like that was, that was my job (laughs) was just getting, getting through that. And then, you know, it would just wouldn't have made sense reading the script. You know, if I hadn't, you know, I would be like, now I'd have a million questions and he would just have to be like, go watch a series. Yeah. um, Yeah. You know, a million different questions. And I'm so glad that I did that. I watched everything that I could. And I actually did watch the extended edition of Firewalk with me as well. And it helped, you know, it, it really helped me kind of wrap my mind around this script where, you know, you jump around in time constantly, you know, cause it's, it's multiple timelines being shown at once. And so reading that is a lot different than seeing it. So I'm really glad I had done my research. Actually, man, I guess this would probably be more of a question for you. Obviously with uh, Annie and uh, Queen of Hearts, a big part of it is that she does a lot of stuff to kind of lead to the ending of season three. Did you kind of watch stuff look through the lens of what Annie would or would not be doing in season three even during that time leading up to reading the script? Yes and no. It was, I mean, at the time when I was reading the script, remember, I did not know that I would be playing Annie. So I was more looking at all of the characters equally. I wasn't necessarily singling in on one, but I definitely reread the script after I found out that I was playing Annie. So I did do that then. But at the time, yeah, I I didn't know exactly what I'd be taking on yet so that came a little bit later the one thing i did want to point out is that we can't really talk about annie without going into the black lodge and i'm not sure if those uh, like lynch just kind of did this because it felt right in the moment 
But I noticed that throughout Dale's time in the Black Lodge, Maddie disappears when she says, beware of my cousin. And then Annie disappears like right in front of Dale Cooper, Wyndham Earl. I feel like there's some almost like a vague connection of sorts because other characters just kind of leave off in their own way. And I know this contradictory to my theory that I came up with, but almost more of a purity of Maddie and Annie and uh, something relative to that. I wasn't sure if any of you had any thoughts in mind about that in the Black Lodge or any of your own theories. The fact that the entire film we made is juxtapositioning Annie with Wyndham and Caroline. I mean, you know, it's all kind of that whole Black Lodge sequence just, you know, for the duration of our film. It's what are the connections between Cooper had a relationship with Caroline and Annie and Wyndham Earl was there. So it's like it's a it's a quartet. And that's what that's what Wyndham Earl wanted. He wanted to bring Annie in and kind of as the prize and he'd be crowned the king of the Black Lodge, I guess. I don't know. And it just kind of blew up in his face. It blew up in all their faces. They weren't expecting that and uh, you know Cooper gets trapped and and Annie lives on to do another day but she's taking all her pain at least in our film and doing her best to transcend it take it somewhere else so that it's not just kind of like I'm just gonna sit here and wallow as a victim I was thinking of is that during this time lean into Annie going in the Black Lodge and this is coming back to the whole idea of like Norma where she refers to Annie being like a almost like a dreamlike state and sort of her own other world I was thinking of that scene the season two finale where it shows Ed and Norma at home and it shows like on the opposite end of the fireplace with uh, Mike and Nadine. Maybe that just shows like what Lynch was more concerned with, but it was kind of interesting to me that there wasn't really a concern of what could have happened to Annie during this time. For Norma, her largest uh, concern is, oh no, Nadine is awake and now me and Ed can't be a thing anymore. Like Annie is not, not only is she not talked about, but Ed is like snapping his fingers, trying to, you know, lighten the mood a little bit. I wasn't sure if you both had any thoughts on that. And uh, again, it's not a plot hole by any means, but it is definitely a contrast of what we saw in the previous episode. So that is an important part of our film because the very first scene after the opening credits is Norma at the bedside of Annie. And you can just tell the guilt is there because she was more concerned about her boyfriend and and that type of thing. And uh, yeah, I mean, because Annie was kidnapped right in front of Norma. I mean, Norma was there at the Miss Twin Peaks. That's a problem. However, I will say this. If you read the original script, the whole scene is Mike and Nadine in the dock at the house. Nadine wakes up and kind of, what's going on? What's going on? And that is when Norma and Ed walk into the house and go, oh my God, she she woke up. Lynch changed it so it's all that jazzy snap and stuff, but they weren't even supposed to be in the scene until after she wakes up. So script-wise, it doesn't read as bad as it ended up playing. <laughs> they made it, they made her a little bit worse in that. So we took advantage of that and kind of played up the, the kind of guilt factor in our film, which does resolve by the end of the film. But that was I mean, definitely something that we we talked a lot about, I mean, especially with Sarah. I mean, saying there, you're you obviously you're happy to see your sisters awake, but you at the same time that you can't even look at her because you feel so guilty about just leaving her out there. And yet still ends up crying about it and making it about that. I mean, she stops herself, but she also can't help herself at the same time. Watching it, I got mad because I was like, what did you just completely like forget about your sister? Like, does does nobody like she she saw it. She saw it happen. What the heck? Like, (laughs) so I was I was blown away that that was the reaction. You see that. And I like the way, you know, Cameron wrote this in the script and we played with it in the script and you see it in Norma's character development of her realizing, you know, she spent a lot of time thinking about herself and her problems and kind of exploring maybe why that was and why she may have ignored Annie a little bit here and there. So that was interesting. And that was interesting also, you know, for Annie's character to internalize, you know, because her whole thing is I'm fine, you know, don't worry about me. 
I think she's a very forgiving person. So I don't think it really, I don't think she really holds on to any of that against Norma. But well, yeah, that's, that's where her training at the nunnery comes in. <laughs> Forget, forgiveness <laughs> is a virtue. Looking through the lens of season two finale and Fire Walk Me is that I think of like the fireplace in that scene. There's some about Lynch where it's like fire and the way he uses fireplace Twin Peaks where it sets people off because, you know, we have that scene with Ed, Norma, Mike, and Nadine. And then we have the scene with Ben Horn and Doc Hayward where Doc Hayward, he really sets off. And then we have two scenes of the fireplace and fire walk with me. I'll focus on the one with Leland when he's really dwelling on the killing of uh, Teresa Banks is that I think there's some about fire in, uh, in Twin Peaks. There's some that Lynch where I feel like there's something that you can tap into and you can articulate enough, but not quite to fully explain it. But that's the toughest thing about running a show like this, that there's stuff that makes total sense to me that feels clear cut, but sometimes I can't explain one bit. So the entire wild at heart is fire. Right. So you just kind of look at it as like, well, that whole that was a motif that he was working with at that time between 90 and 92. It just was I mean, he used so much fire and wild at heart that there's almost no fire in Firewalk with me, <laughs> except for, like you said, the one fireplace shot. Since we're kind of going post season two, when she gets out of the Black Lodge, she seems relatively unaffected. Again, it comes off as clear cut, but also ambiguous in terms of her being unaffected that first day. Again, I know we, me and Cameron, we talked about this off camera at one point, is that you have the Tulpa idea in mind, which I thought was really ingenious. And yours was more the idea of like, well, we just need to explain how to get Annie out of the hospital. Yeah. The thing with her is that she does a year after the event, of season two she does slit her wrists again and this is where it kind of comes to the whole potentially there's a black lodge and that would potentially possess her because i think of the scene with leland when he tries to end his life with bob and the things that had norma been even a little bit later that could have been some that would have actually killed annie well we do cover that in the film because you know she's in the black lodge in their recreation she slits her wrists again and then she goes through her little thing and then once at a certain point after she after she gives Laura the message, she gets pulled out and then she comes to and she's in Norma's bed and Norma discovers her, which is the scene in the final dossier. So we played off as she didn't slit her wrist again to commit suicide. It was something that happened and then Norma just discovered her body and then, you know, took her to the hospital. Makes sense with the whole some months later where it's like, you know, Harry Truman is there. It was like I was saying before is that do you actually explain these some months later in a satisfactory way where it's not me just kind of like dismissing like the bottom title for it. But yeah, again, like I think for me, it's just that there's just certain ways of like how you view stuff behind the scenes versus the mythos can kind of dictate how you feel about a character. I just figured it was worth mentioning the thing about the slitting her wrist again a year later. And the thing I forgot until I reread it today is that Ben Horn contributed a pretty good amount to getting Annie the help that she needed. Because I know that with Ben Horn in the Mark Frost books, there's a lot that's kind of contradictory, even those. And again, we kind of talk about the different realities, but I did think it was interesting that in this case, that Ben Horn did do the right thing for her. Well, and well, this is still in his in his charity phase, right? And Norma does say in season three that she franchised the diner to help her family. Well, she doesn't have any other family but Annie. So there's there's this whole thing of like, this this must be an expensive place, Maddie, that Annie's staying in because they're really pouring in the money to, uh, oh, yeah. it's, it's probably a hundred thousand a year to probably to keep her there. And they, I, I have, I just have this feeling that they just kind of wheel her into that room like every, every day and just let her sit there entirely, yeah. entirely yeah. protected away from everybody else. You know, we kind of played it up where like her body is there in physical form. She's safe, but her mind, she's zipping every, everywhere. She's not really, she's not really there. I mean, her body's there <laughs> and the thing that's worth mentioning is that um tammy actually does visit annie for a couple hours in it and she does talk about how her eyes seem like 
I paraphrase by saying full of life, but it's not vacant at all. And again, it reaffirms like the idea of what you do with like Acts 4 onward in terms of her being able to do all this other stuff. The other one that's worth mentioning, the case of Maddie, is that when there's the I'm fine segment, all I could think of was like how many hours was it of just like getting dressed in different clothes and saying I'm fine at least two dozen times. Like it must have been a phrase that was the bane of your existence for I don't know how long, but I, I think I, I, it would like be this like it would just be this thing that would set me off if I heard someone say I'm fine for like the first six months after that. <laughs> yeah, for the OK, so it was the bane of my existence for two days. The first day was the changing into a bunch of different outfits and saying it over and over again in different angles in each outfit and, you know, all that. The second time that it was the bane of my existence was doing the sound work. And having to match it exactly the same every single time, which took a little bit, but for how many times it was said, I definitely was relieved by the time I didn't have to say I'm fine anymore. I didn't even think about the whole, the, the whole sound mixing aspect. I thought I was just thinking of the filming and then that was like, just like enough. Well, then it was the bane of, then it was, the, then it was the bane of my existence when I was doing the sound editing. Because while Maddie did such a fantastic job with the sound work, occasionally there'd be a moment where, because she would do, tonight, listen, we, we, we were getting tired and also, you know, she was leaving town. So we need to get stuff done. So she would sometimes do like five or six of them in a row, right? And just do her best to match it. And we did like a few takes of those. And then I would go in there and adjust it and make it work. But sometimes there'd be like an extra little moment of breath that I'd have to cut that I have to yeah. cut out. So I literally had to go in and sync every single word. And sometimes I'm fine. It needed to be, I'm fine or I'm fine. So I had to go in there and like stretch out space or, or move it up. That became the bane of my existence was doing that. I think it's like, I don't know what it is. It's like 48 times. It's, it's a long, it's a, it took a long time and it's all that monotone you know but we knew if we if we did it right we knew it'd be a memorable scene i remember maddie saying to me though this could be really comical if it does if it doesn't go over well and so putting the music of dark space low underneath it keeps it from being comical obviously you did sound and video but i think of for me i think of like whenever i edited my own episodes I think of what David Bowie said to uh, Charlie Rose in the late 90s about art. And Charlie Rose asked the question, like, oh, what compels you to make the art that you do? And David Bowie's like, well, quite frankly, just so I can finish and move on to the next one. Because uh, he talks about how, in a lot of cases, it's not an enjoyable process. And editing is not something that I can ever sit down and enjoy. It's just like, all right, just got to do it, have it sound good, and then just not think about it after that. Well, I, I love editing, although it is hard because but it is kind of fun to make things work, you know, or you start putting the scenes together and you're like, Oh my God, that, that works. Right. Or that works, but not quite enough. What can I do to make that work? And sometimes like in, for instance, the queen of hearts, it was just changing the angle or changing, um, seeing a reaction like, okay. Like, you know, it just, it just, you just had to make little adjustments and those little adjustments all of a sudden took it, to another level. I mean, we're talking a four hour film. I mean, you know, a lot of movies can't even sustain interest for 90 minutes. And we we're taking on characters that people know and love from 30 years earlier, played by very well-known actors and trying to hold your interest for four hours. And it seems like it's worked because 
people really seem to really enjoy it. It's on that topic, because um, since uh, obviously we're talking about actors with uh, Maddie, with uh, playing, taking on Heather Graham, was there any stress of just knowing you were taking on like not only just a pre, you know, a previous character, but an actress, you know, of that magnitude? Well, you definitely need to have a certain respect for for that actor and their work. Absolutely. But if I, I, I think I approached it in less of a, oh my gosh, what if I can't make this work to, you know, well, I got to make it work. So how am I going, you know, so how am I going to do it? I didn't want to psych myself up about it. I definitely had respect for her and, and her work. Absolutely. It was an honor to be able to do my best at recreating it. And another thing was that a lot of it was played on a plot line that took place after everything that she had experienced in the Black Lodge and, you know, leading up to it. So she had changed in ways. And that definitely allowed me to explore a little bit more and, you know, kind of flesh that out on my own. But then some of the flashbacks of the, you know, the earlier, you know, the earlier scenes that we see later in the Queen of Hearts film, I definitely had to spend a lot of time watching and re-watching and re-watching all of her little tics and mannerisms and all that little stuff. So I would say I, I definitely saw it as a challenge. Every single one of the actors in the Double R Diner scenes at the end, pitch perfect because they're all doing their own spin on things. We're taking the characters into other areas. But if you're recreating something that people have seen, right? So you have Norma and Shelly and Annie and Cooper and Major Briggs and all that and Winnemerl, you have to match it as best as you can. And it's great because when Maddie and Nico are doing their scenes, it's familiar lines. It's familiar. Oh, we're back in the double R diner. We're back in the season two. We're back in the certain framing of the show. And yet the lines now have new meaning because of everything we've already gone through in it. Even though it's the same lines from season two, you now see the characters differently because, you know, it's now three hours into the film. So. The one question I do have is that for uh, anyone who does a Twin Peaks rewatch, um, where do you think watching Queen of Hearts would fit in it? Well, the idea was Annie visits Laura as a little kid. She visits Cooper as a little kid. When I first was thinking about uh, making the film, I thought, wouldn't it be really cool to kind of bring it up to, you know, where season three ends? And I thought it would be Annie outside Norma's house. There, You'd hear off in the distance the scream of Carrie Page. The lights would go out. That'd be really cool. And then Norman would say, come back inside. And Annie would just kind of go, yeah, like kind of recognizing that there was a plan happening and whatever it was, it was. And she would go back inside. And I thought it'd be cool to play like the Firewalk With Me theme and just kind of end it. And I thought, no, because I, I, like I, I thought about that for about 10 minutes. And I thought, wait a minute, what am I doing? She's visited Laura as a kid. She's visited Cooper as a kid. This is the only moment that we could conceivably have all three characters together, right? So I thought, okay, instead of the Firewalk With Me theme and that would be the end of the movie, we'll have that play as she walks through town at night. We'll see most of the lights are out. It would kind of give us our last kind of look at, at, at the town. And then she's gonna stop and be right at the end of, of episode 18, have them all together and then tie it in with, instead of I was, you know, I was with, Laura and Dale it's now I'm now with Laura and Dale so they're now a team and I thought it'd be really cool to kind of just kind of because the whole show from season two on feels like it's building to some sort of something between the Black Lodge and the White Lodge you know um, and so I just wanted to kind of give you 
a little hint of that and also kind of kick the kick the can down the road about five more minutes, you know, than what we saw. And I, I like the ending of season three. Some people don't. Um, so I kind of wanted to go, okay, it's still going to end on a cliffhanger per se, but it's going to have some emotional closure because you're going to see Annie is in a better place. Cooper's in a different place, Laura in, or Carrie, whatever it's different place, but they're together. And to have this whole, I, I like the idea of if you're facing adversity to not run, to not hide, but take a step forward towards it. And I thought that's the way if I could end my twin peak story, that's how I'd want to do it. Kind of go off with an optimistic final moment. Yeah. And for anybody, you know, for people rewatching and when I rewatch, that's one reason that, and I love the film as a whole and I love, I love the whole thing together, but that is one reason that I am kind of glad that there's also the acts because if someone wanted to, they could potentially go through and watch season, season one and season two, and then watch certain acts and then kind of go in through season three and watch them, you know, in whatever order they want to kind of like fit it into the story in their minds, you know, kind of like, I don't know if there's even a way to really do it chronologically because there's a lot of overlap, but that just something to think about. There's also subtle differences between, I mean, little stuff, but there's subtle differences between the acts and the final film. There are changes, nothing huge, nothing substantial. But if you're really paying attention, there's some things that are like held, you know, a few frames longer. It just, uh, there's little, there's little things in there. So it's a different experience, even though it's the same thing. You made the choice of uh, continuing a little bit after part 18. Was there that part of you being extra deliberate on like, okay, if I, if I view this as basically canon, uh, was there anything that you had concerns about what would be set in stone once it was put in there for either of you? Well, just from a script writing point of view, I thought, like I said, I wanted that emotional closure obviously there could be further adventures or further things, but just, I wanted to feel like they were together. I knew it was the one thing that was like going to go, you know, past official canon, but I also thought, yeah, but maybe, maybe we'll inspire them to kind of go this route because people will like it so much that how could you not do this? You know, there's just something really cool about, you know, them staying in the middle of the road and, you know, and, and, and she kind of, bypasses the whole part 18 stuff of like Richard and Carrie. She's just like Laura Dale. Like that's just as like, she's still calling them by their, their names because she's like, you know, whatever reality we're in, whatever you think you are at your core, you're still Laura and Dale. And so she's just, and, and, you know, they, and they recognize her and, you know, having Carrie take her face off and the frog moss showing up and it's right before the movie seems like it's about to jump the shark. It's over, you know, it's like everything is building. I just, I love the whole, I love that whole ending when she's walking through the town and stuff like that. And um, there's something kind of serene and peaceful about, you know, she's not walking down the sidewalk. She's walking down the middle of the road. Like, it's like Annie owns the town. This is her, her world. And um, I don't know, to me, it just, it just, and the fact that Nico and, and Ruby were so great as, um, as Cooper and Laura, it's just, it, it doesn't feel like uh you know, like we're stepping on anybody's toes. It just, it feels very honorable. You know, it's not like, you know, we're going to just change it all up. It's like, well, just from the, 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 what we've set up in the film, that seems like the logical conclusion to the movie, you know? Yeah. It feels very powerful. And it also lets your imagination go wild afterwards. I love that. 
Yeah, that's the thing is that, uh, you know, it's like when we both made this, it's very clear from a place of like honoring what's come before. It's not like a, oh, I want to reinvent the wheel type of thing. It's uh, And the thing is that it always shows in a movie. It's like, even if people don't explicitly pick up on it, they will pick up on it, at least on a subconscious level. And I thought it was like pretty clear cut well, throughout the every idea frame, was like at least when I watched it. Because a lot of people look at, you know, seasons one, two, you know, the series, each season separately. They, yes, they connect, but you know, season one has its own vibe. Season two kind of kicks it up. Season three is very different. Firewalk with me is very different. People look at the books different. So I wanted to kind of create something that weaved everything together to say, yes, they're different, but they can coexist. Um, I know that there wasn't a lot, but there were a few in the Twin Peaks fan community who thought that me even just making a film like this was going to be, I don't know, like disrespectful. Uh, but anybody who read the script, anybody who sees the film can go, Wait, wait, the whole thing is honoring everything that Mark Frost and David Lynch and any other writers came up with Harley Payton or Scott Frost, whatever. So um, I, I firmly believe, and I've gotten evidence of this as well, that some of the people involved with the show, if they watched it, they, how could they not just feel the love from it? it the whole thing is honoring them. Yeah. No, oh, well, sorry. Uh, you sorry. I, I just wanted to say, you know, I don't think watching it, you could see anything other than a labor of love and a, an homage to something that we obviously have a lot of respect for. Um, I don't think, yeah. And I, I can understand how people would wonder before, but now that it's out there and you can watch it and, and like Cameron was saying, anyone who has seen it knows that it really was a labor of love and, um, was done with the utmost respect. Has there been any other feelings that you felt now that's actually over of uh, after spending so many years in case Cameron <laughs> decades of uh, having this like in mind, getting it filmed, getting it edited. Is there anything that kind of feels like a weight off your shoulders or almost like something that almost like a void at this point? I feel like there's a lot of different feelings you would get after, after making something like this. Well, I just want to make it clear. It wasn't decades because I came up with the story, but then I just moved on with my life and just thought I'd never get to make it. And then as, and then every once in a while I'd be like, Oh, that'd be really cool to see that or whatever. And uh, that would just, you know, that was it. And then around, and then right around the ending of season three, when I realized they, they didn't really delve into Annie, I was like, oh, well, oh, I wish they had done that, right? So that that kind of brought it back up of like, you know, and then I saw Thor's short film and I thought, oh, well, people are doing this kind of stuff. So I guess you can do this stuff. So that's where that came from. I felt a little bit of loss every time we put out an act. Cause I, and even though it wasn't the full film, it was just like, okay, we got this much up the mountain. Here you go. And the fact that it wasn't, I mean, I knew it wouldn't just because I, I cared about it. I knew, you know, everyone put in such great hard work. But every time we put out an act, I don't know if Maddie felt this way, but every time we put in an act, the reception of it was so overwhelmingly positive that it was like, oh, thank God. Like, thank God we didn't fall on our face. Thank God that people aren't treating us like, oh, isn't that special? Oh, that's lovely. Like people were really getting into it. I really like the fact also we put it out in acts because if we had put it out as one film to begin with, people would have watched it, been like, cool, I like it, whatever, moved on. But the acts made people rewatch them over and over and over again to get ready for the next part. That by the time the next part came out, they had already accepted Maddie as Annie and Nico as Cooper and stuff. So it's like each new part became better because they were so invested in these actors as the characters, which they wouldn't have been if they had just watched the movie in one sitting right from the start, right? So like I said, the, when I get comments, 
I'm very humble when I hear about this stuff. But like, seriously, like when I get comments saying, I think of Queen of Hearts as canon, that's always was our goal. We said, okay, it's unofficial. Obviously it's not canon, but we want it to feel like it could be a part of it. And we want to make it with the conviction that people would want to have this be canon. Again, we know it's not canon, but at the same time though, I think, you know, in five years, 10 years time, when people discover it, if there's nothing else that comes out in the Twin Peaks universe before then, it's three and a half more hours of time in this town with these characters. And again, it doesn't negate anything that came before. So it fits in. Someone called this a real missing piece to, we had the missing pieces for Firewalk Me. This is like a missing piece that plugs in a lot of, a lot of holes, but not in a way where it's like, well, that just ruined Twin Peaks for me, but makes you go, that's even cooler. With each one, it was a huge relief to see all of the positive feedback and that, you know, we were making people happy and that always feels great. To put so much work into it for so long and then to see it come to fruition is a very odd feeling. It's a good feeling, but it's also strange because you know that because you've put this amount of time and effort and thought and blood, sweat, and tears into this, you know, you're never going to really stop thinking about it. You're never going to really forget about it. It's always going to be somewhere in the back of your head at least. And so I'm glad that, you know, we're able to look back on it with satisfaction, with, you know, pride and at least a little bit of pride and, and know that we gave that world to people for a little bit longer and that, you know, we made people happy with it. So to me, that's a pretty good feeling. And also we went, we went all out. I mean, like we've said before, um, if there was an actor there on set and they were able to help out, they did help out. But day in and day out, it was Maddie and I every day working on this. So like literally blood, sweat and tears. And, and, you know, and and me, and then, you know, and then (laughs) me being, you know, a new father and working on top of doing the film. It was a lot for two people basically to take on. We tried to get people to help out. Nobody else would show up. They dismissed it. Oh, it's this fan film thing. We had to legally call it that. So, you know, you know, there were people in the Twin Peaks fan community that really supported us. There were a lot of people who went out of their way to like make sure that it did not get any notice whatsoever. So it felt like, okay, we're just doing our own little thing. We're making our own thing. But if we're true to ourselves, if we're true to the idea, if we give it our best shot. We're going to, we're going to just, we're, we're at least going to give it our best shot. We're going to at least know that we tried. And, and so, yeah, you know, with each new part we were putting out and it was just, you know, we were just really happy with it. And then the fact that other people were happy with it made us really happy. And we had people coming to us to say, I really didn't think much about this when you were going to do it. But now that I see it, I see why you worked so hard and wanted to tell the story because it's, it's, it's cool. And I, I had said this on the filmmaker commentary, uh, but I think it bears repeating. Looking at it from the beginning, it was this massive hill that I couldn't see the other side of, you know, we couldn't, you know, we just, take it one step at a time, one day at a time, and just get as much done as we could. And it was a really good lesson, you know, to me at least, about just keep pushing and you will eventually see the light at the end of the tunnel and accomplish something that may not seem possible at first. Were there any other upcoming projects you both had lined up uh, as of now? To be honest with myself, I just, it's been about a month. I took a long road trip and (laughs) just kind of 
I don't know. I've just been, I've been flirting with ideas, like just seeing like which mountain I want to climb next. I haven't decided on anything yet. You know, Maddie and I have talked about some ideas. Again, we haven't decided on anything, but um, I mean, it would be an absolute joy and honor to work with her again. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just finished making some songs with my dad um, and we're called Olita Pearl, uh, which is spelled O-L-E-T-A and then Pearl and did some songs um, and put those out on all streaming platforms. And um, I'm actually going to be uh, recording my own solo original music here at the end of this year. Um, I'm really close to doing that. So I'm really excited about it. Um, and that'll just be under my name, Madison Bates. So hopefully won't be too hard to find. <laughs> Were there any final thoughts for the other of you? Um, you may want to just edit this out, but if you ever do anything on Caroline, get, get Charlotte on here. I mean, there's not a lot to talk about her character because we kind of created her character in our film, but she would be definitely someone to reach out to, to, uh, talk about that character. I feel like there's probably a deceptive large amount about her because, uh, you know, there's so much in her, uh, in her with my life, my tapes, uh, I guess, interpretations of the Black Lodge. Uh, Cause I think of when I did my Ronette Pulaski episode, I would talk about characters on screen for 10 minutes. And it was probably like the most intense like episode I have. So that's the thing is that you can like bring up like a character who's in it very briefly, but if you find like the right stuff and the person who has feels strongly, you can definitely get someone who gets like a great, you know, great conversation out of it. Yeah. And our take on Caroline is very different than I think a lot of people were expecting. But once you kind of think about what someone married to Wyndham Earl for 10 years would probably look like emotionally, <laughs> that's it, it makes sense. <laughs> It makes sense. Thank you both for taking the time to, you know, reach out and uh, be a part of this. Well, thank, thank you very you. much. I, I guess I have a, one question for you, Colin. What did what did you think uh, at the end of Queen of Hearts when you saw the whole thing all together and the movie ends? What was your takeaway from it? I think it's not unlike Part 18 where there's that part of me where it's like always thinking about it. Because my thing is that when I watch Part 18, my stance changed completely 180 on a rewatch. I think there's so much of Queen of Hearts where I'm trying to think of like, okay, this rings true to me or this feels right or, you know, this changes my outlook. And I think I have to wait and do a rewatch before I give like a good definitive answer. That's the thing is that I, uh, there's, there's sometimes I just think of like what, you know, I'm just, like, the gears are always turning. I think that's kind of where I'm at with Queen of Hearts. When you think about it right now, like what stands out to you, like a scene or, you know, what, what are some of the scenes that stand out to you? I, I can't, and this one might seem a little hard to believe, but there's the low angle shot of the woodsman where I was like, wow, he really captures like this malevolence of like this evil that's just like right outside the door. You picked like, a really good angle for that part and it kind of sets the tone of like, yeah, they're going to take on some pretty nefarious stuff from this point on that's the part I hone in on but I know there's a much larger picture at work I do this with like a lot of David Lynch films is that I don't watch them too often but I, I'm always thinking about it one way or another every time you know no matter how many times I watch it or how long I take there's always gonna be a different feeling every time I get from it yeah well we're we're we we're very happy to make this film and it you know it was very stressful for a long time for me and then when Maddie came in while it was still a tremendous amount of work it was so great to have a partner in this because doing this alone was a nightmare and really could never have been done without Maddie's help and her obviously behind the camera and in front of the camera. And I felt like once she got in front of the camera, well, I felt very confident about the film overall. Once she got in front of the camera as, as Annie Blackburn, everything clicked and we were full steam ahead. And it was like, this is the way it always was meant to be. And all the hardships beforehand, while nightmarish, 
was just getting me to the point of having her be a part of the project. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm so glad that I ended up going to Monterey for a couple years because it ended up being just the coolest project to really sink my teeth into and um, put everything into because I was really, really looking for something to do that with. And this was the perfect mountain to climb, so to speak. <laughs> and the love just keeps coming like every day. Like there's just new comments on the, on the videos and stuff like that. It's just, you know, people, I, I don't know, I've never met my entire, you know, but they just leave. So they say things like, you know, thank you for making this Twin Peaks fan happy. That's all we wanted to do. It's like I said, is that uh, you both uh, made a four-hour feature, which is some that you you can't just do on a whim, and uh, it's like a labor of love from beginning to end. So we did not plan on it to be four hours. I want to be clear: we did not, we did not, we did not sit down and say we're going to make this huge thing. We honestly thought it'd be about two hours, two and a half at most, and then it ended up being what it is. And you know, I mean, I wouldn't take anything away from it. No, especially the fact that we put it out, put it out in acts. It 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 you know. People were happy that totally it was like works. all. Yeah. yeah. I guess this will be the last question, but what was the realization of like, oh, wait, this is going to exceed the limit by a wide margin? Actually, it's shorter than we thought it was going <laughs> to be because, I mean, we, we just said it was two, two and a half. But while we were shooting, it became, you know, because there was 150, scene, 150 scenes in the script. So if each one of those was two minutes long, let's just generalize here, right? That would have made it five hours. So the fact that it comes in at 345 with credits means that it's it's shorter than we that we because we, we were like, oh, my God, it's going to be five hours long. What the heck are we going to do? And she's like, we can't release a five hour movie. <laughs> and um, I was like, well, Lord of the Rings did it, you know, <laughs> the Return of the King. So it is shorter than what we thought. However, I do want to say because of the pandemic, we did lose some scenes that probably would have taken us over the and then, uh, the rest of the episode, we'll be coming on. Absolutely, thank you so much.